Friends, what a gift to worship with you today. If you're watching from online, on Facebook, on YouTube, on uh, newlife.nyc, or if you're in the room here for the first time or uh, first time in a long time, uh, my name is Rich. I, I serve as the lead pastor here at New Life Fellowship. And at the end of our service, I'll be downstairs with some of our pastors. Uh, and we'd love to connect with you in the lobby area before you head out of the building. So uh, just make your way to us. Uh, we'd love to connect with you uh, before uh, you head out of the building. We've been in a series of teachings through the book of Colossians, a letter that the Apostle Paul, who was one of the first followers of Jesus, wrote to a particular church 2,000 years ago to help them grow in maturity in their relationship with Jesus. He wanted them to grow in Christ-likeness, and that's what God wants us to do as well today, to grow in maturity, to grow in Christ-likeness. We've covered a number of different uh, aspects of this very short letter, and today we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, because that little portion covers a large portion of the rest of the chapter. And so if you have your Bible, if you have a device, uh, or if you want to just follow on the screen, you can do so. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. Uh, we're going to hear the word of God. My hope is that we, our affections for Jesus would be stirred, that our attention would be towards Jesus, and then we're going to uh, receive communion uh, together. But Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4, hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Pause here for a second. Uh, you are raised with Christ. I know you're sitting in Queens, but you are raised already in Christ. We're going to come back to that. A really significant phrase that Paul says there. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your mind, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died. Did you know that? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. That little line right there is worthy of three hours of meditation this week. Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Last week, we focused more about the inside versus outside kind of faith. Today, we're going to emphasize kind of the, the heaven and the earth aspect of it, the up and the down aspect of it. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to receive all you have for us this day as we look to your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a world in which sociologists call an attention economy, an attention economy. Everywhere you go, someone wants your attention. Facebook wants your attention. Instagram wants your attention. TikTok wants your attention. YouTube wants your attention. Google wants your attention. Apple wants your attention. Advertisers want your attention. Everywhere you go, someone is vying for your attention. We live in an attention economy. Why? Because attention, our attention is one of the most valuable resources out there, and everyone wants a piece of it. And because this is our reality, 
reality that we live in an attention economy where everyone is vying for our attention. There are two particular temptations that we live according to. The first temptation is what sociologists call we live consequently because of all this attention economy. We live in a continuous state of partial attention. A continuous state of of partial attention, meaning wherever we find ourselves, we're not really always there. People are with us in the same room, but we're not typically there with them. Why? Because we are in a continuous state of partial attention. Some of you know this to be true. This past week, you were in the room with your roommate or in the room with your spouse or in the room with your children, but you were not really there. Amen. Uh, you were somewhere else. You were, you were on your devices, which is why the social media uh, g- gives us the temptation to believe we can be God everywhere at the same time and not really present. And so we find ourselves, because in this attention economy, living in a continuous state of partial attention, distracted on a regular basis, not really present before God and before others before us and with our own lives. That's the first temptation that we experience. But the other temptation is because we live in an attention economy, the things that we set our minds on are often connected to things that are not in alignment with Jesus and the kingdom of God. We find ourselves being so influenced. We find ourselves being so pulled. We find ourselves being so formed. We find ourselves being so made in the image of this particular world, which is why the Apostle Paul makes a connection between our mind and transformation. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is to say, as our minds get renewed, as our minds are uh, focused and attentive to particular things of God, transformation becomes possible in us. And unless we are renewing our minds, we're going to be conformed to the world. Are you with me? And so Paul makes a connection in Romans 12 and in this text today because living as a Christian many times boils down to what we think about, what we dwell on, what values are before us, what truths or what lies seep into our consciousness and subconsciousness. And so let me ask you, what have you been setting your mind on recently? What have you been dwelling on? What has kept you up at night? And for many of us, there are lots of things that our minds have been set on. For some of you, you came into church today, and you've been focusing on your failures. You think about all the ways that you have not measured up. You think about your failures, your addictions, your sins, and your mind is set on the truth that you have not measured up in a way that you've wanted to, and you're living with guilt and great shame. Your mind is set on failures. For others, your mind is set on success. You wake up in the morning and you have one agenda, to make more money, to be successful, to be popular in the eyes of particular people. And what we set our minds on is success. For for others, what we set our minds on is what other people think about us. We're constantly thinking about what other people think about us. And research has shown that no one's thinking about you. Amen. (laughs) Praise God. No one's thinking about me. We waste so much time wondering, I wonder what they're thinking about you. Newsflash, they're not. (laughs) And yet we set our minds so much on, what do people think about me? 
How am I perceived before others? Or our mind and our thoughts are fixed on fearful things. What will happen if our minds are so shaped by anxiety and by fear? And the question is, to what degree is what we're setting our minds on in alignment with what Jesus has for us? And so today really is an urgent message to pay attention to what we've been paying attention to. To pay attention to what we've been paying attention to. And if we get this, it'll change the way we show up in the world. It'll change our relationships that we have with our children, with our spouses, with our partners, with our friends, at the workplace, and of course, in our relationship with God. The Apostle Paul is helping the church grow in maturity, and this maturity comes on the basis of what we give our attention to. Now, Paul, from the very beginning, it's a very short letter, but Colossians, four chapters, is filled with so much theological and biblical goodness. And the ways that we've been trying to explain the various themes have been various words that start with the letter P. And so Paul begins, good name, Paul, begins uh, with a prelude. And the prelude, he starts every one of his letters with two words, grace and and peace. I just love that Paul begins every letter with grace and peace. Everything Paul begins, grace and peace. And we've been talking over the last few weeks. What would it look like if everything we did began with grace and peace? You wake up in the morning, grace and peace. Listen, you're about to have a conversation with someone to resolve a conflict. What if you began as you are about to start that conversation? Grace and peace. Before we even talk about our differences, grace and peace. Before we even talk about how widely divergent our opinions are on this matter, grace and peace. Imagine if you went into the subway and it was grace and peace. Imagine when you saw your boss, it was grace and peace. Imagine if you saw your enemy and it was grace and peace. Paul invites us with this prelude to have our lives marked by grace and and peace. And then Paul goes into a prayer. And the prayer is that the Colossian church would have their eyes illuminated, that they would live with the spiritual wisdom that comes through Jesus Christ. He prays for them, and I've been praying for you, and Jesus has been praying for us as a community that the eyes of our understanding will become illumined, that you would see God for who God is, that your eyes would be aligned with the will of God that you would be able to say with your life, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth and in my life as it is in heaven. Paul begins with prologue or prelude. He begins with prayer, and then he goes into a poem. And if you recall, Paul talks about a poem, and the poem is about Jesus Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, that if you want to know who God is definitively, if you want to know who God is fully, if you want to know who God is finally, look into the eyes of Jesus Christ. Because to see Jesus is to see God. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He is before all things, amen, and in him all things hold together. And so Paul wrote a poem about who Jesus is. And after this poem, we find a problem. And in chapter 2 in the book of Colossians, the problem with the church was they did not believe that Jesus Christ, who Paul just wrote about in this poem, was sufficient. And some of you came into church today not believing that Jesus Christ is sufficient for your life either. And we've had this, this calculation that says Jesus plus something equals a complete life. And many of us have lived according to that equation. It's not that we're doing away with Jesus. It's just that we're adding on to Jesus. 
It's not that we're not praying to Jesus. It's not that we're not believing that Jesus is good or Jesus loves us, but we're believing that Jesus is not enough. And so it's Jesus plus my possessions equals a complete life. Or Jesus plus my achievements equals a complete life. Or Jesus plus my how people think about me equals a complete life. And Paul says, no, 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 it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. But they believed that we needed to add something to Jesus. And Paul says, no, you're wrong. And what happens then is what we discovered last week, that if you're adding stuff to Jesus, it's going to lead to an inside-outside faith, a faith that now creates hierarchy, a faith that now creates a sense of emphasis on the outside versus what's happening on the inside. And next thing you know, we set priority and we have hierarchy. And so Paul's time's corrected and we get to our next word, perspective. Perspective. Paul's trying to help the church live from a different perspective. And he's trying to help them to live in a perspective that emerges out of a particular position. Perspective that emerges out of a particular position. And so Paul begins chapter 3 by letting the church know something about their position, that they have a particular position with God because of Jesus, and that you have a particular position with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And yet here's the real danger of Christianity. The danger of Christianity is this. You have a position with God, but you're not experiencing the benefits that come from that position. You're not living into the reality that your life is hidden with Christ in God and all the blessings and the benefits that come with this reality. And one of the saddest statements that, are, that can be made of our lives is we did not experience what was available to us. Do you know there's so much available to you in Christ? And the reality is because of where our attention is held, we miss out on so much. I came across a story of uh, someone had won a, a Powerball ticket for $60 million, and this Powerball ticket became worthless because after six months, it was not claimed. No one claimed the prize. I don't know if someone threw it away, got lost in the laundry, whatever it was, but it was an un the largest unclaimed jackpot since 2003 when someone left $53 million unclaimed. Now listen, by no means, here, here, here you're a pastor here, I'm not endorsing gambling or Powerball. Please don't go, oh, the Lord said to go play these numbers today. Uh, let's be careful here. But here's the general pr truth. The general truth is we have something at our disposal, and yet day in and day out, we don't claim what is rightfully ours. And there's no greater or sadder commentary on someone's life that you had all this at your disposal and you didn't claim it as your own. You didn't receive it as your own. And so Paul wants to help the church understand because of your position in Christ, you have so much available to you. And, to, and not only do you have so much available to you, it's available to you right now before the general public can really experience this. And to understand this, I need to take a quick three-minute theological trip down the road of resurrection and what it means to be raised. And so for three minutes, I need you to stay with me because I'm going to talk about two types of understandings as it relates to the resurrection and why Paul says you have been raised with Christ. 
okay? And so don't get distracted. Uh, just stay with me for a second. There are two ways of understanding the resurrection and what Paul means in chapter 3, verse 1. First of all, there was a standard Jewish view of resurrection that was uh, that embodied, that people carried in their minds. And what the standard Jewish view looked like was this on the screen. At one point, we live in the age of Satan. The Messiah comes, and then there's a resurrection of everyone, and then we have the reign of God. And so in this, in this theology here, we are living in the age of Satan. And this age is characterized by evil, is characterized by oppression, is characterized by disease, is characterized by death. The society is messed up. The, the world is messed up. Uh, it, it snows in April. The Mets are terrible. The Jets uh, don't make the playoffs. It takes 30 minutes to find a parking spot in Queens. This is the age of Satan. Amen. This is the age of Satan. And according to this, this chart here, there's the age of Satan, the Messiah comes, and then everyone is resurrected. And then we have now the reign of God. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he fundamentally challenges this understanding because something happened in Jesus Christ. In the Messiah, it was so confusing for people to understand what happened in Jesus because this is the next chart shows us exactly what happened. We have the reign of Satan. The Messiah comes. The Messiah dies on our behalf. The Messiah is risen from the dead. And then we have problems remaining. And so according to the Jewish view, resurrection happens at the end of time for everyone. Are you with me? But in this view, the early Christian view, the resurrection happened in the Messiah, and still history goes on. And so we have the resurrection, and there's still death. Resurrection of Jesus, and there's still pain. Resurrection of Jesus, and there's still challenges that we experience, still wounds, still tears. We live in what theologians call an already, but not yet world. We are already here, but we're not there in its fullness. Christ has come, but Christ has not fully restored everything yet. We're in this in-between space, but here's the good news. Even though we are in the in-between space, we can live from the future. Let me think about it this way. I say it this way. Uh, there's, there's some folks who have what's called advanced movie screenings. Advanced, they're just a, a select group of blessed people who, who, before the general public can enjoy a movie, they get access before everyone else to sit in a movie theater with their popcorn, whatever it is. Oftentimes, it's for free, and they can enjoy the movie before everyone else. Why can't I get a job like that? I just, I just want to enjoy the movie before everyone else, and then the general public enjoys the movie. This is what Paul is saying. Because you have been raised with Jesus Christ, I know you're in Queens right now. I know you're sitting down, but you have been raised with Jesus Christ. That means right now, because of faith in Christ, you can enjoy and display what the world is going to look like when everything is brought to completion in Jesus Christ. You can right now burst forth with beauty and burst forth with love and burst forth with the power of God because Something has happened in Jesus Christ, and your life is attached to him. 
Let me explain it this way. Uh, in Minnesota, I was reading a story about a guy who was walking his dog, and in Minnesota, it snows a whole lot there. And uh, when Christmas comes, it's beautiful, right? Snow comes, it's all nice. But when it's snowing in March and in April, you know, that's a sign of that the devil's still at work here. And so it's still snowing in March and April. He's walking his dog, and as he's walking his dog in his city, snow is covering the ground. There was a, a flower that just protruded from the snow just like bursting forth out of the snow. And it was almost as if the flower is saying, I'm not going to wait until the snow melts, amen, before I burst out of the ground. I'm not going to wait until the conditions look right before you can begin to smell my fragrance. I'm not going to wait until everything is green and everything has happened. I'm going to burst forth out of the ground right here, right now, while there's still snow on the ground. That's the resurrection. Jesus says, I'm going to burst forth whether you like it or not. In a world that's marked by sin, I'm raised from the dead. In a world that's marked by death, I'm going to destroy death. Jesus bursts from the ground but here's the good news, friends. Because of faith in Jesus, you can burst through the ground as well. Praise God. You don't have to wait until everything is great before you can display what is already yours in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says, I want to let you know, you have a status, you have a position, you are already raised with Christ. You have died. You have been raised. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the Christian story. The Christian story, as I've said from this pulpit many times, is not, the gospel is not simply God makes bad people good or God makes good people better. The gospel story is God makes dead people come alive. Praise God. Dead people come alive. In Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you died, that's true, but you've been raised. Your life is secure. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Therefore now, now we get it. Therefore, set your minds on things that are above. Why? Because that's where your true self is. Your life is hid with Christ in God. Therefore, set your minds on things above. What has your attention? That's the question, isn't it? To what degree is your attention fixed on Jesus and the way of his kingdom? Now, when Paul says set your minds on things above in the New Testament, that phrase shows up 26 times in the New Testament. Set your mind, set your mind, set your mind. And that word set is, is, is in the Greek language, it's in the present continual tense. When Jesus says, seek and you will find, it's the same language. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. It's this present continuous text. Tense. Why? Because Paul knows something about me and knows something about you. That you are so easily distracted. Amen. Some of you right now, you're very easily distracted right now. Right now it's happening. I want to tell you. Paul knows that we are so easily distracted. As the hymn writer said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so Paul says, because we're so distracted, we must continuously set our minds on things above. And I understand this personally. I understand that in a given day, I need to set my mind on God 
multiple times a day. Because left to my own devices, I will wander very quickly. For some of you, you, you start your morning off with prayer. You start your morning off with quiet time, and it's wonderful. You have your Bible. You have your, your favorite app. You have your coffee. You start your morning, and it's wonderful. It's like, wow, I, I, I feel the very presence of God. But you know that that moment, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, whatever it might be, is not sufficient enough to carry you through the day. Because it doesn't take much for us to get distracted and start leaking what God has put in us. And so you begin your morning with prayer. You begin your morning with silence. You begin your morning filled with the Holy Ghost. And then you get on the subway. And someone steps on your shoes. Or someone coughs a bit too loud and a bit too close. Or someone sits where they should not have sat. And all of a sudden, whatever the, whatever the Holy Ghost was in you at 6 a.m., you're already leaking by about 10 or 20% by the time you get to work. Amen. Then you get to work. And your boss has a critical remark for you. There's an annual evaluation. Someone steals your stapler. You're down to about 40%. Thank God for lunch. You have a, a good time at lunch. You come back. There's reports. There's things to be done. By 5 o'clock, you're not even a Christian anymore. And you go, what happened? How did this happen? Come on, somebody. You get home. You're too tired to make dinner, so you order dinner uh, for you and maybe someone else. But it's 85.79 to order dinner. It's outrageous out here. And then, and then you eat it, and then you put it in the Tupperware in the refrigerator. You forget about it. The food goes bad. I mean, what a mess. And then the next morning, you say, let's do it again. You wake up filled with the Holy Ghost and, and reading the Bible. And then you get on the train again over and over again again, you know, I know that fixing your mind on God once a day is not enough. And so Paul says, set your mind, set your mind. It's repeated. It's repeated. Why? Because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And when Paul says, seek your mind, set your minds on the things that are above, he's not saying, I want you to meditate on angels. I want you to think about streets of gold. I want you to think about someone playing the harp and on a cloud. When he says set your minds on things above, he's not talking about that kind of heavenly, uh, super spiritual language. When Paul says set your minds on things above, he's essentially saying this. I want you to live with singularity of heart. Ah, in, in Psalm 27 verse 4, we hear it this way. David says, as he's writing a prayer before the Lord, he says, one thing have I, we just sang it, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What, is, what does it mean to set your minds on things above? It means that you have a mind that is so fixed on not just the beauty of Jesus, but the way of Jesus. That our minds are fixed. It's, it's what Soren Kierkegaard called purity of heart. Is to will one thing. What is the one thing to will? Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done 
on earth in my life as it is in heaven. And we need this reminder, friends. We gather as the people of God on Sundays to be reminded that what matters most about you is the attention that you give to God and the way of Jesus and his kingdom. And this is what I know about your life. And this is what I know about my life. That instead of having singularity of heart, I tend to be double-hearted and double-minded. It's not one thing have I desired of the Lord, it's 10 things I've desired of the Lord, 20 things I've desired of the Lord. And what begins to happen is our hearts are divided. I love how Henry Nouwen says it because Henry Nouwen is honest enough to talk about how double-hearted and double-minded he is. Look at this quote. He says, indeed, how divided my heart has been and still is. I want to love God, but also want to make a career. I want to be a good Christian, but also have my successes as a teacher, a preacher, a speaker. I want to be a saint, but also want to enjoy the sensations of the sinner. I'm so glad he can confess that. I want to be close to Christ, but also popular and liked by people. No matter what living, that living becomes a tiring enterprise. The characteristic of a saint is, to borrow Kierkegaard's words, what I just said, to will one thing. Well, I, am, I will more than one thing. I'm double-hearted, double-minded, and have a very divided loyalty. Listen, the sooner we can confess and be honest about our double-mindedness, our double-heartedness, the sooner you and I can begin to say, it's not one thing I've desired of the Lord, it's 10 things, it's 20 things. The sooner we can begin to position ourselves so that the thing that really permeates our mind and our hearts is, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to have communion with you. One thing I desire, what do I desire? You, Lord, you and you alone. And so Paul invites us to singularity of heart. How do we have singularity of heart? You know what this means? It means that this week for some of us, we're going to take the time to live in Scripture in a deeper way than we have. So for some of us, we've been scrolling through the Bible and we've just been doing it as a religious duty. But maybe this week, what does it mean to set your minds on the things of God? You're actually going to open your Bible and you're going to take the time to slowly chew on the scriptures. To allow the Holy Spirit to begin to shape a new imagination in you. To shape your heart, to, sa to shape your desires, to shape your affections. Maybe this week you're going to live in scripture just a little bit more. What does it mean to set your minds on God? It means that you're going to set your timer this week on your phone for maybe five minutes or ten minutes, and you're going to sit in the very presence of God, not to get anything out of it, but just to say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. Lord, guide me, direct me, give me wisdom. I want to do your will. I want to love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when ten minutes is up and your chime goes off, you go about your business, and you might have to come back again. What does it mean to have to will one thing, to set your minds on things above? For some of you, it means this week you're finally going to dust off your journal where you've written your prayers and, and poured out your heart before God and you haven't done it in three months, in four months, in five months. For some of you, you can't even find your journal. Get a new one and, and start again. Lord, here I am. This is what's going on in my heart. Paul says, set your minds on things above. Why? Not to get God's attention, but because you already have God's attention. The story of the Bible is a story of a God 
who pays close attention to you. The story of the Bible is a story of a God whose eyes are fixed on you. The story of the Bible is a story of a God who even though you mess up, even though you sin, even though you have an inconsistent life, even though you don't pray as much as you want to pray and read the Bible as much as you want to read the Bible and go to church as much as you want to go to church, God's eyes, his eyes of beholding you are not contingent upon whether you're beholding God. His eyes are just fixed on you. And what is Christian living? Christian living is a recognition that God's eyes have been so fixed on me, and now I'm turning to have my eyes fixed on the God who's fixed on me. Set your minds on things above. Why? Because Paul says, because Christ is your life. He doesn't just give you life. He is your life. And that's the prayer that I want to have for my own life. I want to live in such a way where it's not just I have a relationship with Jesus. I want it to be said about my life, and I pray it's said about your life, that Christ is your life. That without Jesus, you can't breathe. That without Jesus, you can't see. That without Jesus, you can't hear. That without Jesus, you can't live. Paul says, Christ is your life. Therefore, set your hearts on things above. Let's pray together. Let's have the worship team come forward as we fix our eyes on Jesus through the table of communion. I'd like to invite those who are going to be serving communion to go to your particular stations in the room. But I want to give us a moment in silence to once again fix our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the best things we can do today is confess how distracted we are, to confess our divided loyalties, to confess how much our mind and our hearts wander to and fro to just confess that and then say Lord help me to live with singularity of heart where I desire one thing you 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 and the evil one in the world around us would love to keep us distracted love to keep us pulling, being pulled from the center. So let me ask you, where have you been distracted? What has your mind been fixed on in such a way that it has pulled you away from the awareness of God? What have you been spending too much time on? What's been pulling you away? Today is an opportunity for us to ask for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to refocus our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for this table of communion. 
We come to the table of communion, not in our righteousness, but in your righteousness. Not in our name, but in your name. Not because we've been good, but because you are good. And we thank you for this gift we are about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to stand.